We are continuing a, a little mini-series here on the Lord's Supper. Two Sundays ago, we were looking at kind of the basics of the Lord's Supper as Jesus um, gave the instructions for his disciples on the night that he was betrayed and how it was connected to the, the great the meal that was associated with the great act of redemption of God, delivering his people out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. And he told them that on that very night, you to, to take a, a lamb, a spotless lamb, without any blemish. They were to sacrifice that lamb at the doorpost of their house, ply the blood on the doorpost, and then, thank you. And then the Lord would see the blood and pass over and protect Israel in the midst of judgment. Often you see that in scripture, salvation through judgment. And God saved his people. And that, all, as great as that magnificent act is in the Old Testament, all of that was a picture of the greater act of redemption that Jesus was going to accomplish on the cross and that he took everything really associated with that and applied it to himself. That he is the Passover lamb, as Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians says, that our Passover lamb was, has been crucified. And then last week we looked at, um, uh, we looked at the Lord's uh, Supper in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians and how uh, it really and truly is the presence of Christ spiritually there when we take it. Just by way of reminder, if you, if you were here last week, if you were not here last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians 10 where the Apostle Paul was arguing that Christ really is truly is present in that supper. And he was using it. He wasn't making that point. He was actually assuming that point in making his a point for why the Corinthians shouldn't participate in idolatry. Because participating in idolatry, he says, was communion with demons. And he was saying, you should know this because when we take the Lord's Supper, you would be communing. We are really and truly communing with Christ who is, who is in heaven. And we do that spiritually. And so today we're going to be looking at some care and caution in communion in verses 17 through 34 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you'd follow along as I read. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I command you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined 
so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And this is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, this passage raises a, a many questions for us, and I imagine that many of you probably were very, are very concerned when you read some of these words. Um, there's some very interesting questions that, that need to be addressed in this passage. Let me read a couple that came to my mind. What does it mean to take this Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? What does he mean in verse 27 when he says to do so would be guilty concerning the body and the blood? And this is what I think is a very crucial one. What does he mean in verse 29 when you take it without discerning the body? What does eats and drinks judgment on himself mean? And what does this, uh, that, that is the reason why many of you are weak and ill and some have died or fallen asleep. What does that mean? And what about the contrast in verse 31 and in 32, when he says, if you judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But if we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we will not be condemned. Did I catch all of them or do you have some more questions too? Maybe I should have opened this up sometime this week. There's a lot of questions in this, uh, in this chapter, and I hope to address some of those. If you have more, I'd be glad to talk with you uh, afterward and do a follow-up if we need to. But let me just walk through this passage, and hopefully as we do so, we'll address some of those questions as it relates to this, the Lord's Supper or communion. And so here's, there, we'll be following along in four points. And so here's the first uh, point I want us to notice today. And I do apologize for not having a handout this morning, but if you do have a, a, a note or a piece of paper somewhere, a notebook or uh, something, I encourage you to take some notes. Um, first, the Apostle Paul writes about the corruption of communion. The corruption of communion. And we, we looked at the terms for communion uh, several weeks ago. One of them, uh, we, we usually tend to call it the Lord's Supper. It's the term he uses here in this, uh, this passage. Um, but sometimes it's used, referenced as communion, as it, we looked at last week. That we, when we participate in it, we are actually in communion, in koinonia, was the Greek word, in fellowship with, with Christ. So we're looking at the corruption of communion, verses 17 through 22. Look at the, Paul's criticism of their practice in the church of Corinth. And let's try to understand what's happening here. Notice verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. There were things that he could commend them for earlier in his letter. And as you read, you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul seems to be kind of addressing a lot of issues that they would have. If you scroll through and see some of the chapter headings, you would see he routinely says, now concerning, now concerning, now concerning the thing about what you wrote, now concerning this, now concerning that. Um, but apparently this is something that that uh, they didn't write him to ask him questions about. This is something he heard about what they were practicing in the church of Corinth, in the church that he had planted, in the church that he was there for 18 months. And he's, he's hearing about what's happening in that church, and he goes, I, don't, I, I cannot commend you in this, and I need to address this with you. He says this, because, the rest of verse 17, because when you come together, it's not for the better or for the worse. As we see, and as we saw in our reading, the Corinthians were perverting the Lord's Supper. And they were doing so, so bad, that it would have been better had they not done it. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. It was so bad that it shouldn't even be called the Lord's Supper. Did you catch that in verse 20? He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, they may have thought they were participating in the Lord's Supper, but the Apostle Paul was saying, it's such a perversion of the Lord's Supper, we shouldn't even call it that. So what's going on? Well, verse 18, for in the first place, he says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Divisions. And he uses two words for divisions here, and he uses factions a little bit later in this passage. He uses two uh, Greek words. I'll give you those two of them. Schisma. Is the one here. It's where we get the word schism. And then the other one, uh, heresies, 
where we get the word heresy, uh, which would be like a sect or a division or a splinter group or a, you know something like that. So he's using two different terms to describe what's going on in Corinth with the divisions that are there. And apparently this is, uh, uh, it, factions and divisions are a problem in Corinth. In the city of Corinth, probably at large, and that's re reflected in the church itself. Turn back in 1 Corinthians to chapter 1. And how the Apostle Paul begins his letter, it usually you know, begins with his Paul, you know, by the will of God as an apostle to the church that is in Corinth, to those who sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then he usually has a prayer of thanksgiving that goes from verse uh, 4 all the way through verse 9. And then he, after that prayer of thanksgiving, he tends to jump right into the first issue. And his very first issue, notice this? See the thanksgiving there in verses 4 through 9? And then here, the very first one, what does your heading say? Mine says, divisions in the church. I appeal to you, brothers, and by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united, united in the same mind and of the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which would be the, um, the uh, Aramaic name for Peter. So it's kind of saying, Lord, there's some people who go, well, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow, follow Peter, Simon Peter. And then some who say, I follow Christ. And he says, is Christ divided? Was Christ crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So, so it seems that divisions are a common issue in Corinth. And he deals with that in the first four chapters. And then he returns again to it as it pertains to the issue of the Lord's Supper. Although the, the, the nature of the division in chapter 1 is a little bit different than the nature of the division here. The nature of the division in chapter 1 is centering around different ministers, different personalities. And we're going to get to the nature of it here. It's a little different, but it's division nonetheless. But before identifying the nature of the factions and the divisions in Corinth... He says this very interesting phrase. It's the end of verse. It's, it's kind of a parenthetical. Uh, it doesn't mark that off as such in, um, in the ESV translation here. Maybe other translations might have this. But if you were to go, the divisions among you, and then you were to kind of put a parenthesis around and, I believe it in part, in verse 18, and then go all the way through verse 19. He's kind of just making an aside here, and I think it's a very interesting one. He says, and I believe it in part. Because part of me, I believe, I believe that, or as the footnote says, I believe a certain report. He goes, I believe it. That there's divisions among you? I believe it. And why? Because he says, because I lived with you 18 months and I know how you people are, perhaps. Uh, but he says this in verse 19. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. Interesting. Very fascinating, isn't it? There's two key words there. In the Greek, there's two key words. But the, I want you to notice, in order that, this is a purpose statement or a purpose clause. And then I want you to notice there at the beginning of verse 19, must. It's essential. There's a divine purpose, strangely enough, a divine purpose in some factions that happen in the churches. God can and does Use division in churches to fulfill his purposes. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Oh, I believe it. And then, so he says that this, this type of thing does happen. It can happen, and God uses it. Now, he's, of course, not excusing it, because even though God is, is the, the primary cause of all things, and then he's working his, out his plan according to secondary causes, God, in his sovereignty will use the sinful actions of people in churches to bring about his purposes. Okay? He, he, this, is how, this is how God works. It's part of the, the mystery of, of who God is. And this, of course, is not excusing sinful actions by certain persons in the church that are causing divisions, but God in his sovereignty will use them. And what is the purpose for which he will use them? In order that the genuine, the tested and tried and true believers will be recognized. Fascinating, isn't it? 
We're, we're now in, um, we are not associated with a denomination or we don't, or a synod or anything like that, like many denominations are. But right now in June, this is denominational general assembly season. You could look in the news. The Southern Baptists just had one. The Presbyterian Church has one. They have them all over, and it's this kind of season. And Paul's words, verses 18 and 19, stand out. <laughs> stand out it, really clearly because in those denominational meetings, you could see divisions and factions. And I think in some cases, you can clearly see those who are proved to be genuine is what the Apostle Paul says here. The word genuine there means proved or tried or after an examination or a trial is proved and tested to be the real thing. And so the Apostle Paul, and, and he uses this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, uh, 13, verse 5. He says, he says for believers to do this, examine yourselves to test to see whether you are in the face. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you, indeed, unless indeed you fail to meet that test. These divisions that are happening in Corinth are evidence that some members in Corinth, in the Corinthian church, are not true believers. And this is concerning for Paul. One commentator writes in this passage, he says, The factions that break out have, it seems, a refining and purifying effect on the church in that they clarify who truly belongs to God and also uncover those who do not truly belong to God. So it's just an interesting to note here in this issue with this, the issue of communion and the Lord's Supper here and how it is abused. The Apostle Paul says, and I, I could believe this in part. So after this aside, he now turns to the nature of the factions, okay? And here's the essential point that he's making here. There are different groups doing their own thing and excluding others. That this really is about class lines and class distinctions. Look at verse 20 and 21. Because he finishes that aside in verse 19. And he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Now, what's happening here? Is it kind of like, a, you know, where we had, you know, okay, we have the family feast, you know. And we kind of have rules. We want to do this for, for, you know, young moms. We want to make sure young moms have warm food. I've said for, you know, with Janet, when the girls were really small, she didn't have a hot meal for eight years because she was always feeding the children first. And so we're like, yeah, let's have the, the children go first. And then, then we kind of sort things along in that way. That's a, not a legalistic thing. We're just kind of thinking practically for, for the church congregation. This is what Paul is talking about here. It's not a, a crowding in line. It's not a timing issue. This is a class issue. This is a class issue. He says, notice what verse 22, what do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? This is a social class issue between the rich who brought their own food and didn't share. And then there's this sorting or prioritizing people based on their social status. And so the poor who didn't bring as much food didn't have as much. Now, it might be helpful to think about the background of how the Lord's Supper and communion was practiced in the very early church. Remember, the churches didn't have church buildings. They met in homes, and they would usually meet in uh, perhaps a wealthy person's home or somebody who would have a large enough home to house an entire church congregation. And then it would begin with what they called the agape feast or a love feast. And that's where it was kind of like the regular meal. So if you could kind of think of it like this, uh, it would be like we kept gathered together here, we, we sang, we read some scripture, we went to family feast down the hallway, and we were just eating and everybody was taking stuff, and then we did communion at the end. It'd be kind of like that. That's how the early church had done it. But now, imagine coming for fourth family feast and sitting here and going, okay, if your income is a certain level, you're at this table. And then if your income is at a different level, you're at this table. And you just bring your own food. So the wealthy could bring all their own food, and their food stayed at their table. And those who had 
brought less, brought, were, could bring what, what they had at their table. So you can imagine how schisma, schism this would be. Splitting people, splitting the congregation according to class. There, so I said the divisions in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 were divisions around personalities, divisions around ministers. You may even see this today in social media, like, oh, I really like so-and-so preacher. I like his clips. Here, it's centering around not individuals, it's centering around classes of people, classes of believers. And so when Paul gets word of this, I like, I, I like literal translations or ones that try to do it literally as possible because there's just a Greek word there. And in verse 22, they go, let's <laughs> love it. What? <laughs> you, can you picture the apostle Paul like, an, like a parent when he finds out like this, the, your kid did something and you're like, what? What are you doing? He's like, what? And then he says that in verse 21, or, um, verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? I mean, think about this, what was happening in those places that those who were, they were sectioning people off according to class and then they were eating so much food and they were drinking to be, actually get drunk. But he says this, or do you despise the church of God? See, that's the issue right there, isn't it? What is the issue that is, what is the, the, the main problem here in Corinth? What is, what is corruption here? The corruption, is it, is it dealing with my own person? Do I have my own personal sin that I have to deal with? And when I come to the, to the Lord's table and boy, if I, if I don't confess all of my sins, then, then I'm not worthy to come and, and that sort of thing. Not, not really. The main issue is what it's done to, what it's doing to the church. Despise and humiliate. It's very interesting language. It's very reminiscent of Proverbs 17, 5. Whoever mocks the poor mocks his insult, his maker. Have you ever read this verse? Whoever insults or mocks the poor insults his maker. Capital M. Not in Hebrew, I'm in English. The Lord. The creator of all things. What a what a extremely cautious passage, right? To insult the poor. And that's what I think is Paul is echoing here. You when you're doing this, you're despising the church of God. And humiliate those who have nothing. He goes on, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So this is the corruption that is happening in communion. This is the heart of this corruption. Was sectioning people off. It's a, it's a familiar situation apparently in first century churches that the early church needed to really learn the lessons about. James addresses something I think very similar in James chapter 2. You're familiar with this passage. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you say, pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you... He says, have you then not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Language that's reminiscent of what we're going to see here in this passage. Distinction, judges. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Again, Proverbs 17. Are not the rich you the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? This is the corruption that was taking place in the Lord's Supper. It was an occasion for worldly social divisions to be implemented in the church, to be put on full display and to be magnified. And this was not a true reflection of what the body of Christ is to be. The Apostle Paul says this must 
not be so. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 about the nature of the unity of the, uh, of the church. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this verse often gets thrown around today to, to say that they're, you know, the no, especially the no male and female part, to get confused and perverted in that sense. Not saying that there's, there's no distinctions, but when it comes to your status as a baptized believer in Jesus Christ and as a member of the church, those distinctions should not work out. And he says, and if you are Christ, then you're Abraham offspring, heirs according to the promise. So I think this is what's behind this corruption of communion, corruption of the Lord's Supper. Now, the second part of this we want to look at is the celebration of communion restated. Okay, restated. Now, why do I say restated? Um, I should say instituted, really. Because these are the verses, verses 23 through 26, are the verses that we recite together when we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. We're reading the institution of the Lord's Supper. And, and it should, as I was thinking about it, I should go, it shouldn't be restated. We think restated because you start in the New Testament and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that you have the, the institution of the Lord's Supper in, in the Gospels, and then you think, oh, well, Paul is writing much later. Actually, the, the letter to the Corinthians actually predates or is a right around the same time as the, as the earliest of the Gospel letters. So it could be, could be quite possible that the Apostle Paul is, is here. This is the first, chronologically speaking, the first recording of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so let me read through this and maybe make a few comments. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered from you. See, this is interesting, right? He says he received this from the Lord. Now, we might think, well, the Apostle Paul received this secondhand, maybe from Peter and James and John and but he says he receives this from the Lord and he delivers it to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, and this is that Eucharisto, that's the Greek word Eucharisto to give thanks. So if you hear the word Eucharist, that's where it's coming from that verse. It, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then there's the key, of the Pauline line, I'll call this here. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The death of Christ. All of the other gospel accounts of this do not include this line. This is something unique to Paul. And he's explaining this is what the effect of this Lord's Supper taken together properly, worthily, would look like. You're proclaiming the death of Christ. And need I remind us what the death of Christ accomplishes? The death of Jesus Christ establishes a new covenant. He even mentions it here. This is a new covenant in my blood. The Old Testament was speaking about a new covenant was, that was coming. And Jesus says, on that night, now, the new covenant is instituted. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. I don't think I have this here. Oh, well, there's the other points here. Uh, but here, let's, let's, as it relates to the first one, establishes the new covenant. Let me just read to you Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 13 through 15. For if the blood of goats and bulls, referencing the Old Testament sacrificial system, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, you should be thinking Passover here, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has incurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
Jesus' death establishes a new covenant. Jesus Christ's death is a victory over the powers of darkness. The victory over evil. The victory over sin. Colossians 2, Paul says that, that Christ canceled the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The language there in the backdrop would be kind of like a conquering, think of a conquering Roman ruler who has just defeated the enemy and is dragging the sub subdued and humiliated enemies back into Roman cities. And there's a, a parade, a triumphal parade about their victory. That's what Jesus has accomplished by the cross, nailing that to the cross. He disarmed them and put them to open shame. So Christ's death establishes a new covenant, is victory. It brings about our redemption. We have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. Forgiveness and cleansing. Christ's death even brings sanctification to us. And believers identify with Christ in his, in his death. So keep that in mind. Why does, why does Paul he, he re say, you guys have corrupted the Lord's Supper in your practice. I cannot commend you in this. It's very terrible what is going on. It'd be better if you didn't even do it. You shouldn't even call it by that name. And so let me repeat for you what it is. And he, re, he, gives, he gives them the instruction, and it's written down for us. And what, what a blessing this is, that we actually have crises in the early church that become the occasion by which we have this recorded for us in Scripture. And then Paul adds, when you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. His selfless, sacrificial death for the forgiveness of sins. And you have turned it into an occasion for selfishness and division. This is why this is so bad. So now let's look at the consequences for abusing communion. Verses 27 through 32. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, okay, as we've just outlined here in the corruption of it, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Here in this larger context, this would be you know, are you celebrating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way? Are you celebrating in such a way that you're perpetuating the sinful distinctions? Are you celebrating in such a way that you're actually humiliating other believers in the church? Blatantly mistreating the poor, exaggerating the social classes that, are, that the world has. But when you gather together as the church, we must not have. Are you relegating members of the church to second-class citizens? That's what you should be examining and checking. Now, what is this in verse 29? Without discerning the body means. There's a couple of options. Because it's the Greek word soma, body. And 1 Corinthians is filled with this term. And it, he, the Apostle Paul uses it in different ways in different contexts. You kind of have to figure out which one. Because it could mean like, you know, a, a, like a physical human body or the, like the believer's body. It's sometimes referred to the, the actual body of Christ. But it's also used metaphorically for... The church, the body of Christ. And so here, he doesn't have anything attached onto the end of it. He doesn't say you know, the body and the blood. He doesn't say the body of Christ. He doesn't say the body, your church, the body. And so there's a couple of options, okay? And here's, here's option A, that it's referring to the body of Christ. So you need to discern the body of Christ being in there. And there's some merit to this, as we saw last week. The cup of blessing that we bless, chapter 10, verse 16. Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? That's option A. Here's option B, that the body here references the church. If you were to turn to the next chapter, 18 times Paul uses that Greek word there, body. And if not all, many of them refer to the church just look at chapter 12 verse 12 for instance 
For just as the, the body is one and many members, he's talking about a human physical body, and all the members of the body, okay, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slave and free. So it's kind of what he just said in the previous chapter. And we are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. The foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. So you get, you get the picture here. Now I want you to go down to verse 27. Now, he says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So some commentators see you need to discern that Jesus Christ is present in here. That's what some would say. He says, discerning the body means. Some would say, well, no, maybe he's using this as reference to the church, meaning you need to discern the church. You need to recognize that this is not just your own personal exchange and communion, that this is something that we all participate in. We're all sharing of one bread. We're all drinking from one cup. I mean, not literally drinking from one cup. You know, you each get your own cup, but it all came from one source. How about that? Can you imagine if we did that post-COVID, drinking from one? No? Okay. So there's some who say A, some who say B, and, and actually I think there's some merit to thinking both. There's some merit to thinking both. That the association between the gathered church of Jesus Christ and their union and identify with him is so great that, that I think maybe Paul is intentionally kind of blurring lines here. Tom Schreiner, a, a commentator on 1 Corinthians, he says this. Paul has already forged a close connection between the broken body of Christ and the one body, which is his church. The same connection and link is probably present here as well. Those who discriminate against the other members of the congregation while eating and drinking of the elements do not discern the significance of Christ's death, nor do they perceive the unity of the body. Indeed, Christ by his death has made all believers one. Those who fail to perceive the significance of Christ's broken body and the unity of the church incur judgment. So possibly, let's think possibly here, the consequences are the effect that this has on the entire church. What does being guilty concerning the body and blood mean? I think we return to that key Pauline point of verse 26. You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Again, Jesus' death was self-sacrificial, giving himself for others to take the memorial of his selfless sacrifice and turn it into a memorial of your own self sinful selfishness and self-satisfaction is scandalous and outrageous. So maybe this is a little less of, maybe I'm not personally worthy of taking the Lord's Supper. Friends, nobody is worthy of taking the Lord's Supper. Nobody's worthy of it. It's purely by the grace of Jesus Christ and suffering and dying for you and that merely by faith and receiving and resting in him that we are even enabled to be united with him and come into faith and have our sins forgiven. And... And he invites us as the memorial of this act that I have done for you. Come, let's establish your faith. You're trusting in me. And now I'm giving you the things to give you confirmation of it, to affirm your faith. But, and I say that, and I don't mean to make a, such a, a start, but, but, but Paul is very concerned. You know, do not distort that beautiful picture. Do not distort that beautiful picture. I do not commend you. And so notice the consequences in verses 29 and 30. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Okay, now stop there, stop there for a moment. Um, so I've often read this passage and I'm like, you know, Paul speaks very metaphorically sometimes. And so I wanted to understand kind of what, well, what's the, maybe there's an old Testament background here. 
Um, because, you know, really, is it really true that the Lord would kind of bring sickness or illness upon somebody or maybe even bring death upon somebody, a believer in the church? And I'll get to why it's a believer here in a moment. And so I often approach this passage and going, okay, well, let's go to the Greek. Let's find out. Like, what is it really saying? What is he really, you know, because it can't be that he'd actually bring sickness and, and cause people to die. And so here's the result of my study. That is what it means. <laughs> it is what it means. I, I went looking to try and find some, and it really, that is what this means. And I think we need to kind of wrestle with that. We need to wrestle with that passage. Now, I want to say that the judgment here, there's some who would say that this judgment here is the eternal judgment. So you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus Christ, you come and take the Lord's Supper, and then, boy, if you didn't discern it right, boom, the Lord's going to smack you down, and you're experiencing eternal judgment. The judgment here is not that. This judgment here is more corrective, disciplinary. Notice what he says here in verse, 20, in verse 30. It says that those who, some who have died in verse 30. There's a little footnote in the ESV, and I think that this is very helpful here. It's those who have fallen asleep, right? As in chapter 15, verse 6 and verse 20, okay? Fallen asleep. I actually wish the ESV would have put in fallen asleep here. Because falling asleep here, this metaphor for the death of a believer is used exclusively for believers in the Old Testament. There's no instance where this is used for an unbeliever. Unbelievers die. Believers fall asleep. Fall asleep in the Lord. And I think that this comes right down to Jesus' teaching in John chapter 11, the famous chapter with Lazarus, his dear friend Lazarus who had gotten sick and who had died. And Jesus goes, and uh, he said some things, and then he goes, after saying this, friend, he's telling his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. This is before they go to see him. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. You remember this passage? But I will go and awaken him. And the disciples, bless their hearts, and I mean that true in the true southern sense, bless their hearts. He says, well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll wake up. <laughs> he'll recover. And Jesus Jesus had, had spoken of his death. They thought he meant he was taking a rest and sleep. So I think in a way, that's just perhaps the origin of this idea that believers don't die, they fall asleep. They fall asleep in the Lord. Because there's going to be a resurrection that, that Lazarus pictures, pictures here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse, uh, verse 6. Let's just look at those really quick. You see other usages of this. First, first Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. Then he appeared, speaking of Jesus, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Right there. Skip down to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have, what? Fallen asleep. So this is not eternal judgment because this is a term that's used exclusively for believers. But it's even more clear in verses 31 and 32. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So this judgment that is coming, this is not the eternal condemnation. And that should be a huge relief to us. But let us also be mindful of the, the true warning the Apostle Paul is giving about the seriousness of the nature of this Lord's Supper. Did they really get sick? Did some really get sick and some have died? As a corrective measure, as something that the Lord was doing to, to purify the church? Remember, he says that at the very beginning, he goes, I believe that there's factions because in order, you won't be able to discern who's genuine among you. And friends, I, I will keep looking in the commentaries. If I find something different, I will let you know. But it's not there. The Lord does discipline. He does bring discipline like this. 
And let me read to you Hebrews chapter 12. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary or reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the Apostle Paul gives the consequences for abusing the Lord's Supper in this way, and we should take them seriously. We must not explain it away. And so lastly, the fourth one, the corrective action for communion. And I would say it even goes back to verse 28, where he says, let each person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. Now, again, I say this with, with caution. I'm not saying you, you now need to search down into, you're, that you're not worthy to come to the Lord's table unless you could find every nook and cranny of sin that's down there. <laughs> let me tell you, the abyss is deep. You start looking, and I want to find all of it, brothers and sisters. There's a lot. It's, you know, you, could, you, you can't see the bottom. But we do examine ourselves. We don't come to the table lightly. We do examine ourselves. But we examine ourselves in light of the fact that he's coming to us and offering this to us. As a reminder, this is my forgiveness. This is the forgiveness I've given you. So we examine ourselves, and then verse 33 and verse 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together, eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then I love this. So about other things, I will give directions when I come. He probably had a whole long list, a laundry list of things to give to the Corinthians. But I'm grateful. I'm grateful that the Lord, by his spirit, told him about this one. And so in closing, let me give you to you, let us read together from our Baptist catechism question and then also the chapter on the Lord's Supper. What is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? And the answer is it is required of them that would worthily partake in the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body. As we spoke of, of their faith to feed upon him. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you want to come on the Lord's day and you want to hear from him that you are forgiven? Then come to the table. If you have that desire and want and believe that he's done that for you, then come to the table. Of their repentance. Do you turn from your sins and want to turn to the living and true God? Do you come out of love for Christ? Do you come with a resolve like, I really do out of love for what he's done for me. I want to be more obedient to him than a new obedience. This is a great opportunity. Lest coming unworthily, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Or as uh, paragraph one of chapter 30 says, the supper of the Lord was instituted by him the same night he was betrayed. It is to be observed in his churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and a display of the sacrifice of himself in his death. It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death. I outlined a few of them earlier. When you drink this, you are to be reminded of that. That's to be confirmed in you. All of those benefits, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him. This is one of my favorite pictures. Because we are weary and we 
travel through this world and the, the walking faithfully in this world in obedience to Christ. It's hard and we stumble and we fall and we skin our knees. And to come to the table and to be nourished and refreshed when you're hungry and you're tired. I love that. That's what this meal means. If you're beaten down by the world and you're, you're tired and your feet are dirty and you scraped your knees and you come and you're just like, I want refreshment. And, you're, and you stay in your seat and don't come to receive that. You're just deepening your problem. And then lastly, this. And their further engagement in to all the duties they owe him. We come failing in all of our duties. And we show up on Sunday and go, man, when I take inventory, boy, I blew it this week. And then we come and he, we take this meal and we're reassured in him. And then it says, now you could leave here nourished and refreshed and ready to do uh, the duties that you owe to him. The supper is a bond and pledge of their communion with Christ and each other. So what does examine yourself, judge yourself, discern the body mean? If you are a Christian, God is concerned about the way you live in the world. We do have to remember that. He wants you to check your life. He desires his people to be sanctified, and this is the process by which he does it. But he sanctifies you by reminding you of what he has done for you. What better place to examine than taking that meal that proclaims his death until he comes? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as I pray, and then I'll invite you to the Lord's Supper. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the supper that you gave us on the night you were betrayed. We thank you that you, that you loved us to the end. That you were crucified, dead, and buried, but that you are alive and seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And so now, Lord Jesus, we come to this meal that you have given us with gratitude in our hearts knowing that you have given this as a gracious gift to us, that this is not just a mere memorial of what you have done, that this really and truly is you feeding us and sustaining us with your gospel. And so we come before you with gratitude, and even now we do examine ourselves we want to discern our place in the church body. That we think of others ahead of ourselves just as you have done. And so we can take this meal together as your one people. We pray this in your mighty and precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.